one of the messages uh, that I spoke there because I didn't have all that long, uh, much notice to put anything together. So sorry to my family because you've probably heard this so many times. Before I get into the message, I just wondered, um, do any of you enjoy like a, an adrenaline thrill rush? Yeah, I know. Yeah, cool, Brad. Yeah. And uh, um, I, I, I like... Uh, I, I like being on the edge. I hope John put up his hand because he's told me enough funny stories that that guy loves to be right on the edge. But uh, I really like, like I, I love bungee jumping. I love going on a crazy roller coaster. But do you know what brings me my greatest thrill rushes? It's when I go out on my sailing boat. Okay. Now you might be thinking to yourself, sailing? Oh, come on, man. How can you get a thrill rush off sailing? Well, my friend and I, we own this 17-foot catamaran. We keep it down at the club. And most of the time, it's pretty boring. In fact, it's very boring because Kelowna is so calm. The wind never blows here at all. And um, uh, it, it reminded me yesterday uh, when it was, in fact, windy and I couldn't go on the lake because it was too cold, uh, of a time that my friend had, my friend and I had about two years ago out on the lake. It was, uh, it was an August day and it was just one of those occasions in life where God, in his, in his loving kindness, just cleared the calendar for my friend and I to be able to go out on our boat that night in great weather conditions. I was sat in my office and I was looking down. I can see in my office right the way down to Peachland and I could see this storm starting to, to build and, and come up. And um, in the summer, I often make this, this call to Laura about three o'clock in the afternoon. Hi, honey, how are you doing? And she's like, okay, what? And it's like, is it windy down in the south? And, uh, and she says, I don't know. So I say, well, will you go and look out the back window and tell me if the trees are blowing or not? And that day she went, yes, the trees are blowing. How about the flags on the Amma Climate School? Yes, they're blowing like this. So perfect. I was texting my friend Sam, and we were like scheming our great evening of sailing. Anyway, five o'clock, got home that evening, was heading out the door, and Laura stops me, and she says, please don't tell me you're thinking of going sailing tonight. And I said, why? Yes, I am. She turned around and she said, there's a storm going on. And I said, well, yeah, exactly. It's going to be awesome. And, and, and then she turns to me and she says, she always says this, do you want to die? And I'm like, <laughs> I've never felt like I'm going to die sailing. But it's like, don't worry, honey, you'll be well insured. And my friend and I, we went, <laughs> we, we went out that night and we just had the most amazing sail. It was, it was gusting 25 to 30. We really shouldn't have been out there. It was, it was just a glorious evening. There was not a motorboat in sight. It was absolutely fantastic. None of them were stupid enough to go out the lake. There was a couple of kiteboarders out there. There was a couple of other guys from the sailing club down there. And there was a couple of windsurfers out there. And we just, there is no feeling on earth, I, I guarantee you like this, when the boat is like this and you're flying a hull on the catamaran, you're leaning off the edge trying to, I was ballast that night. My sailing capabilities were nowhere uh, a match for my friends. He was at the helm. There was no way I was going to do that. Do you know what? We had two hours of just, it was just amazing. We were clinging to that boat all night. It was incredible. I got home. I bashed my knee on the shroud. I was bruised from here right the way up to my sort of groin area. I couldn't go on the beach for two weeks because I had this great big Charlie horse here. I hit my head about three times. It was awesome. It was just great. Anyway, I came home that night and I was just like this. I was a bit like Kramer in that episode where he drinks too much coffee. And I, I, I had the complete jitters. I, I had this adrenaline rush that I'm not joking about. It, it didn't die down for two days. My poor wife I'd be lying there 
sleepless at night, and she'd be going, she'd be going, uh, thinking about sailing. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it's so juvenile, I know. And yes, probably one day I will grow up. But uh, uh, anyway, big thrill rush. Do you know what? Easter weekend can be a little like that. We've just had the most amazing weekend last weekend, haven't we? We were just talking again this morning about the Friday service, and I know a lot of you were there, and it was just a beautiful weekend. We had a lovely service here Sunday morning, and then there was the Pursuit Baptismal Evenings. Do you know what? Last weekend for, for me, and I know for my wife and our family as well, it was like that. It was that, it was that emotional rush of the, the, the pinnacle of the, the calendar in, in the Christian year where we come and we remember the, the, the death, the burial, and more importantly, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an amazing weekend. We had those baptisms last week. And Laura and I were chatting during the week, and we were saying, you sort of come off that high, right? It's like when you had a thrill rush, and you come, it's sort of like, ah, like that, you know. And Laura said to me, what do we do with Easter now? Do we, do we just forget about it for another year? It's a good question, isn't it? Do we, do we just not think about it again now until Lent next year? Or, or, or is this something that we should take into our year that will encourage us and give us hope and give us the power uh, to see God glorified not only in our lives but in our church, uh, in, in the things we do day to day? If you've got a moment, I'd like you to turn please with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, the passage will come up on the screen behind us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a very well-known passage of Scripture. And we're going to read verses 3 through to 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born." For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about, about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, but he did not raise him, if, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he stands over the kingdom to God, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that that does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son of Man himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be in all. One of the wonderful things about the Christian message is, is that it's a message about hope and not despair. It's a message about life where there is death. It's, it's a message of light where there is darkness. And this message is based on these three significant facts that we find in this passage in verses 3 and 4. And these are the facts. Firstly, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Secondly, that he was buried, proving that he was dead. And that third, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus is alive. That's what we celebrated it last weekend. People might question it. People might doubt it. But if they study the evidence before them, they will come face to face with the historical fact that Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, and the grave clothes were left there. Many have tried to disprove this. Men such as Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel. These are leading men now who are leading writers on the, the subject of Christian apologetics. But these two young men, intellectual men, atheists, with legal and journalistic uh, training set out to disprove the fact of the resurrection. And they subsequently came face to face with the fact that Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, he is risen, and he lives in the power of, the, of an endless life. This sounds simplistic, doesn't it? It is. There is one answer to all the problems we face, and it's this, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a message of hope and life that can bring light into the darkest places on earth like North India and South India. It's amazing. It's such a, a beautiful place. There's so much contrast there in color. And, and, and there is so much darkness and bondage there in Hinduism. Yet we have churches there that are flourishing, offering the message of love and hope and light is breaking in there. We live in a society today where there's not a great deal of hope, is there? You only have to switch on the news to know that there's economic uncertainty in our uh, western part of the country here, largely driven by oil prices at the moment. There's unrest in Eastern Euro in Europe. Uh, there is war in Syria. Airstrikes in Iraq. And now we hear the last two weeks in Yemen. Uh, the world is trying to deal with ISIS. But Christianity isn't about fear. It's about hope. Christianity is real, and it is for real. It's a message founded on the hope and the historical fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Let me ask you a question. 
far would you go to save someone? How far would you go to save somebody? Say you're driving from Penticton to Kelowna on Highway 97 there. You know that bit where it's a bit close to the lake? What would you do if the car in front of you veered off and went into the lake? Would you pull over? Would you jump in? Would you try and save someone? What happens if you're walking up, say, Knox Mountain, and you discover that somebody's stranded on a cliff up there? Would you help them? Back in 2010, there was a disaster in a Chilean mine uh, at Copiago. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Basically, what happened is a mine shaft collapsed, and it left 33 miners stranded 700 meters deep in the earth, about seven kilometers into a network, five kilometers, sorry, into a network of, of mine shafts at this copper mine. You might remember the story. It was on the news. It, 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 they survived there 69 days before being rescued. And what they did is, is they, they sort of figured out where these men were likely trapped, and they started to di drill a series of probes into the ground 700 meters deep until eventually, after a number of days, they retracted a drill bit, and it had a note written on it, and it said this, we are well. And the world suddenly realized that these men were alive. And what it went into effect there was just this massive rescue operation. You might have remember it. There was three international drilling teams. NASA Space Agency was involved with it. Twelve large corporations from around the world. It was an absolute global effort to, rem uh, to, to rescue this, this, these men, which cost even at the site an estimated 20 million US. And after 69 days of these men being trapped, they were rescued one by one. You might remember it. How far would you go to rescue somebody? Let me tell you this. When it came to rescuing us, God has gone as far as he needed to. He went all the way. And that meant his son, Jesus, was punished in a horrific way, as we remembered last weekend. He was spat upon and mocked. They impaled a twisted crown of thorns onto his head and beat it into his brow. They, they ripped his back to shreds with a long whip with which had bits of bone in it, and then they strapped a, a rough, splintered, heavy piece of wood to his back that would have gone into those wounded shoulders, and then they made him carry it in humiliation through the streets. And then they stretched him out on that cross, nailed long nails into his hands and through his ankles into his feet. It has been said that crucifixion is the worst form of execution there is because you linger in death so long. You could hardly breathe because you're hanging there. And it's painful to, to push up on the nail that drives through your feet to try and gasp a breath. I can't imagine what it would have been like. But the hardest thing of all would have been between the hours of, of, of 12 noon and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. For it was during that time that the Lord Jesus Christ bore the terrible curse of, of our sins in his body on the cross. My transgressions, I know what they are. Your transgressions, you know what they are. And we can't possibly start to imagine what it meant for the Holy Son of God to become a curse that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. 
We cannot know what it meant for him to satisfy of all God's righteous claims and requirements against sin. All we know is that during those three hours of darkness, he paid the price, he settled the debt, and finished the work that was necessary for man's redemption. And you know what? Before he died, he would look down from that cross and he would say to the people who had mocked him and tormented in front of them, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. God has gone as far as he needed to to save us. And that meant Jesus was treated in this way. For I have delivered to you First of all, what, with that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Like I've already said, the, the Christian message is one of hope. It's, it's one of hope, not fear. For we know that it doesn't end there. For that verse tells us that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's why this is so central to the message, isn't it? It's, it, it's not based around one weekend every year is it rather the the, the easter weekend is the impetus that that drives our life our service our sacrifice uh, for him as we seek to share this amazing message of of hope and life in our daily lives and and with those who live around us his his resurrection it, it confirms the fact that he died for our sins it's the proof that redemption was accomplished by the Lord's death. In verses 5 to 7 of this passage, we, we, we read there a, a number of eyewitnesses who saw it. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to a crowd of 500. He appeared to James, and then he appeared to the apostles again. People who could testify that Christ is risen, that the grave is empty, and that the, tomb clo- to, to, the, 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 the grave clothes are still there. One of the traditions we have in our our family at Christ, Christmas, we, we have many strange traditions, most of whom are initiated by my wife, I must say. It's because she's English, not Welsh, I reckon. But, um, like, we have ham sandwiches for breakfast on, a, on, on Christmas morning. It's quite weird. I don't know where that came from. But anyway, one of our really cool Christmas traditions is every year, Christmas Eve, we watch this movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Hands up who's seen it. You've seen that movie? It's, a, it's an amazing movie. It has more gospel application than The Matrix. It's just... It's just <laughs> so, it does. It's a wonderful... I love it. For those of you who haven't seen it, you should go out and watch it. It's 1946. It's clean. It's fun. It's, like, it's highly recommended. And it stars James Stewart as George Bailey. And uh, he's the main character in this story. And he saves his money as a youngster, and he wants to travel the world. And not to give the whole plot away, but but through a series of events, he he never gets to leave uh, the town of Bedford Falls. He ends up being a mortgage broker, and he ends up taking on this villain in town called Trotter. And uh, uh, towards the end of the movie, it looks like the villain has won. And uh, he he decides to to end his life, and Clarence the Archangel comes along. You're going, how can this happen? It does, it's good, trust me. Um, But uh, his guardian angel comes along, and he says these words, I wish I'd never lived. 
Do you remember that in the story? I wish I'd never... And then they backtrack what would have happened if this guy hadn't lent the money to the people he did, if he hadn't uh, uh, saved this person's life or done this. All the simple little things he did in life uh, made such a difference. And a care group last week, Kathy Yonkers was leading it, our care group, and she asked us all a very poignant question. She asked us this, what if Christ is not risen? Have you ever thought about that? We, we sort of scratched our heads a little bit because uh, I'd never quite thought about it at, at the angle that she, she delivered the question. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what your life would have been like if God in his grace and mercy didn't reach in and save you? Have you ever thought about that? What would life be, be, life be like if Christ was still in the grave? Look at verses 13 to 19 with me. The, the Apostle Paul gives us the exact answer as to what it would be like. They're going to come up on the screen, hopefully. It says this, verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, did, but, he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those who, who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most pitied of all Paul tells us exactly what life would be like if Christ was still in the grave. Firstly, our preaching would be without purpose. What I'm doing here this morning is it would be a complete waste of time if Christ was not risen. My preparation, my study, the seminaries all around our nation and and throughout the world that, that, that teach pastors, all the commentaries that have been written, the books, all in vain without any purpose if Christ be not risen. Secondly, our faith is without forgiveness. That's what it says here in verse 17. Imagine not being forgiven. Imagine carrying the weight of your own sin around. Just imagine the pain and the anguish of it, knowing that we are not forgiven. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, we would never know that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. Jesus remained in the tomb. Satan would have won, wouldn't he? But he didn't. Thirdly, if if Jesus was still in the grave, our death is without deliverance. The English word cemetery, it means sleeping place. And the idea is when you go to sleep, the implication is that you've got to wake up again, right? And if Jesus is still in the tomb, then there is no hope for anyone who has died in Christ. And lastly, our service is without significance. I think to the, 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 the Apostle Paul, this was the absolute most fundamental thing. Ultimately, if, if Jesus Christ is not raised, we are just fooling ourselves. The skeptics are right. We are self-deluded. You know, I don't want to stand here this morning and preach to you what is not true. I don't want to mislead you in any way at all. What was the common word in that passage that we read there? It was the word if, wasn't it? If. If Christ be not this. If Christ be not that. But look at the first word of of verse 20. What does it say? Verse 20, it says this. But. Okay. 
It's not a wonderful word, but. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But eat in turn Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ is risen, the first fruits. And because of that, my preaching this morning is not without purpose. Our faith has forgiveness, our death has deliverance, and our service has significance. Christ is alive. He is the first fruits. What does that mean, first fruits? Have you ever heard that expression before? What on earth does that mean? In the Old Testament, the Jews had seven great feasts that they would celebrate during the calendar year. They can be found in Leviticus chapter 23. You can jot it down. There's no need to turn there, but it's, they're found in Leviticus chapter 23. The first feast was the Feast of the Sabbath. It was a feast that would be celebrated every week on the last day of their week. They would come and they would celebrate the Sabbath. The, the, the second feast was the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. I spoke about that a few weeks ago, and that would have occurred last weekend. And also, last weekend was the third feast that would occur, and it was the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits. It can be found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 to 15. Now, the Feast of the First Fruits, it marked the beginning of the barley harvest in their year. It was the first grain of the year. It was the first crop that they had. And what would happen is as the barley would grow and as it became ready for harvest, they would go out and they would cut a sheath of barley, one sheath, just one sheath, and they, they would take it into the temple and the priest would take that sheath, I'm going to keep my arms low, and he would wave it, it's hot up here, okay. before... He, he, he would wave it before the Lord, and he would do it not on the Saturday, not on the Sabbath, but he would do it on the first day of the week, the Sunday rather than the Saturday. Now, the first harvest was viewed by them as this great larger harvest that was still to come. They would take the first fruits knowing that there would be this abundant harvest of barley that would come later on in the following weeks. And so do you get the picture? What what does the first fruits of a single sheath of barley that was taken into the ta- temple, does it not represent the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who first rose in newness of life? And he is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection is the certain guarantee that all of us here this morning have, who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will also rise again in newness of life. Do you know what? Our resurrection life will be completely different to that that Jairus' daughter experienced or, or his friend Lazarus. You know, those guys, they were resurrected from death again only to die again. But you know what? We're going to be resurrected into new life. Listen to what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to verse 52. It says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Imperishable. 
and we will be changed. We will be like him and we will be with him forever. What a message of hope, eh? A message of hope not just for Easter, but a message that should be at the forefront of our thinking, of our lives. It's a message of response to the claims of Jesus. Do you know what? If, if, if you don't believe this here this morning, do you know what? The, the only sin that will ultimately take you down to hell is this. It's to say, Lord, I reject you. Lord, I ignore you. Lord, I turn my back on you. And your response this morning can be one of acceptance or one of rejection. A week before Jesus was crucified, he was in the home of Simon, Simon the leper. (laughs) Um, Interesting name. But it was in Bethany. And uh, this story is recorded in a number of Gospels, and I know it's very, very familiar to you. Why he was at that banquet, a woman came in. Her name was Mary. And she came in with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume. And she anointed Jesus with this expensive perfume. And we are told that the fragrance of that perfume filled the room. The reaction to those who observed what this woman did was quite interesting. Some of them, it says, were indignant. They said, what a waste of money. We are told that the perfume was worth more than a year's wages. Let me ask you a minute. What's, what's worth more than a, a year's wages to you? What is that sum of money? 100,000? 150,000? What's more than a, a, a year's wages to you? Let me ask you a question. Ladies, what would you say if your husband came home one day and said to you, I want to spend about $2,000 plus per week on golf, boats, bikes, and all my toys. Men, what would you say if your wife came home and said, I want to spend $2,000 plus per week on hair, clothes, makeup? I mean, that could go vice versa, I guess, but um, it's a lot of money, isn't it? It's an awful lot of money, isn't it? Do you think that that's acceptable to spend that sort of money? Are they worth it? Think about it a minute. Let me ask you another question. What happened, what would happen if that person only had a week to live? Changes everything, doesn't it? If your spouse only had a week to live, and you had the resources at your disposal, no expense would be spared, would it? No sacrifice of money or time or energy or effort would be too much. You see, Jesus knew when that woman did that and poured that expensive ointment out on his feet. He knew he only had a week to live. And that's why he said, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor with me, but you won't have me with you for much longer. I don't know if she got it or not, but he did. And her immense sacrifice is written in three of the four Gospels, and it's a lasting memorial, even this morning, as I bring you that story. What will be your memorial? 
we have a wonderful opportunity to sacrifice, serve, and worship the same Jesus. Particularly at this time, we've just had a wonderful presentation of the work that's going on in northern India there. We have just had an explanation from Brad about our pastor who is worn out. And there's opportunity, isn't there? How are you thinking this morning? How are you reacting to what you've been told this morning? Are you thinking of leaving? Does it look like it's a bit on the rocks and maybe maybe now's a, a good time to dash out the back door? Or are you sat there wondering, what can I do? What can I do to step up? What can I do to help? It's at these hard times that we have a a wonderful opportunity to bring the things that God has given us, our gifts, our talents, our treasure, our time, our energy, and bring them and place them at the foot of the cross, at the foot of Jesus, and say, Lord, take what I have and use it for the glory of your kingdom. I promise you this morning, any of you, I promise you, I have never regretted one penny ounce of energy effort or service that I have done for the kingdom of God. It, it will never return void. That's what his word promises. We have that eternal hope. You will never regret rolling up your sleeves at this time, whether it be India, whether it be simply here at Willow Park South and saying, I'm in, I'm on board, I want to serve. What can I do? If you've got questions, speak to Brad afterwards. I'm up the front afterwards as well. You can come and chat with me. The other South elders will be available as well. If you want to say, hey, you know what? I want to roll up my sleeves. I want to be part of what's going on here. I want to be part of the, the larger Willow Park network and its missions in India. I promise you, you will not regret it if you join in with the, the ministry, with the work of what we are doing here. I'm going to ask the worship team if they will come and play for us again too. I think we've got a couple of worship songs to end with. And while they're coming up, I'm just going to pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for your word.